All right, if you have your Bibles, would you turn to Philippians chapter 1? Last Sunday morning we looked at verse 1, and I, I promise you we're not going to go just one verse at a time every week. Because I don't think I'll finish by the rapture if I try to do that. And I don't know how long I'm going to be here, and your new pastor comes in, I don't want to shackle him with, you know, whatever it's going to be. But these first two verses I've discovered from my own heart are very important, so we're just going to lay the groundwork, and we'll take larger chunks of passages as we go through. Last Sunday, we looked at verse 1, where Paul says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. And what we basically suggested and believe that the word's teaching there is a joyful church is one who has at least these four ingredients. These are kind of the bottom line, the non-negotiables, I believe. You have people who see themselves as servants, not as always takers. Secondly, it's consisting of saints. We're glad for every person who walks in that door, aren't we? No matter who they are, no matter where they come from. But the church is made up of those who are saints. They are holy, not sinless, but in Christ, God sees them as those who had never sinned because of what Christ has done. Thirdly, there's the whole issue of elders and leaders and deacons. We suggested to you to consider that in the future, that God would raise up men who will have the spiritual oversight of the congregation. That's really important. And then, of course, the diakonos, the diakonoi, the deacons, the supporters who come alongside, who care for the physical needs, who, according to Stephen and Philip in Acts 6 and 7 and 8, they, they were men who preached at times, and they visit and hospitality and all of those things. And, and a good, strong leadership will be a blessing to any congregation. Leaders need to lead, and people need to follow, and churches need to work together. So we talked about that last Sunday morning. Now, verse 2, he says, to conclude this salutation, this opening statement, he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that, that phrase there is more than just Hey, how you doing? Greetings to you. It's much more involved than that, and we'd like to flush that out today and share with you what I believe the Scriptures are teaching on these two subjects. I personally have been richly blessed, once again, by studying these two verses, and this particular verse, the two words, grace and peace. It's been a blessing to just re rehash these things, and I've learned some new stuff. That's the way God's Word is, isn't it? Well, remember that Paul is using the standard letter-writing form of his day. This is not unusual in his day. Today it would be. But he's, he's adding the Christian, uniquely Christian content in it. Paul was theocentric, that is, God-centered, and he was Christo, Christ-centered. And so in the opportunity to write this letter, he lifts up God and he lifts up Christ and points them to him. And that really should be the goal of my life, isn't it? It should be the lives of Christians' goals to always point. Like John the Baptist said, he must increase, but I must decrease. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works, but do what? Glorify your Father who's in heaven, always pointing away from me to Christ, always pointing away from me to God. And Paul does that here as he opens up. Now, it's interesting, and I'll just say this in passing, there are eight different times in the New Testament where Paul uses this same wording. We have it here in Philippians, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, 
Ephesians, 2 Thessalonians, and Philemon. He uses the same wording as he opens up. Now, some of the other introductions and salutations are a little bit different, but the idea of his opening is the same. In Colossians, he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father. In 1 Thessalonians, he starts out, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. He ends that salutation with those words. In 1 and 2 Timothy, and I did a little bit of reading this week on that, and I wish I had time this morning to bring it out, Peter kind of gives a different slant on this, same idea, but he says, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus our Lord. 2 Timothy, the same thing, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord, that's Paul. But when we get to Peter, Peter says this, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And the idea there is don't let it be static. Don't get your grace and your peace, put it on the shelf and just let it sit there. Let it influence your daily life. Let it influence your thinking and your choices and your relationships, your actions, your reactions. Let it permeate your Christian experience. Well, in verse 2, Paul gives to us what I believe is a desire of his heart for them. And by the way, this is a great desire. As you pray one for another, as you pray for those in the church and for others that you know, this is a good thing to include. Lord, may your grace and your peace flood their lives because it is so meaningful. Well, let's talk first of all this morning about grace in Paul's life. Paul likes this word. One of the authors says it was approximately 104 times. Another one says around 100 times. I didn't take the time this week to count them all. I really didn't. If you'd like to do that, God bless you. Um, I, I didn't. It would be a profitable study, perhaps. But Paul likes this word. It's very meaningful to him. Grace was the heart of his gospel. In Acts chapter 20, he talks about that he has given his life he says in verse 24, I don't count my life dear to myself. What a great commentary. I'm not a bag of chips and all that. I'm not the most important thing in my life. As a matter of fact, I count my life as no matter. It's not me. But I have given myself to preach, and he calls it this, the gospel of the grace of God. Grace is at the heart of of his gospel, really, of the gospel of Christ. It's by grace that we're saved, and grace is the primary motivator to holy living. Listen, what is it that stirs me to love and obey and serve God? It should be grace. When I remember all that God has done for me, that should be a motivator for me to live a holy life. Titus says the grace of God has appeared and teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldliness, we should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present world. Grace is what pushes me and motivates me in my Christian life. Now, Paul himself knew about grace. I've got the reference there with, on your outline. I want to just read it here quickly, if I may. This is just one of the places. There's a couple of places in Acts where he elaborates upon it, but I thought this passage in Timothy really captured Paul's personal testimony in regard to being gripped and overcome by God's grace. He says to young Timothy, quote, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, 
because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent of Christ. But I received mercy because I acted ignorantly unbelief, and here's the word, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul, you know his, his testimony. He was Saul of Tarsus. He was a hater and a persecutor of the church. On the Damascus Road, he had permission to go and kill more of those people, drag them out of the houses, and beat them to death. That would be on the local newspaper if we had it in front of us in many places around the world. Although nowadays, they don't drag them out of the church. They go into the church and they kill them. Why? Because they hate them. Jesus said, don't be surprised. If they hate me, they're going to hate you. And Paul was one of those guys. Now, he was well-schooled, sat in the feet of Gamaliel, and we'll see in chapter 3 his resume and of the things in religion, but he was a hater, and he was on his way to find some more Christians and kill them, and God stopped him. A light shone, and Saul of Tarsus became a convert of God's grace. He experienced it personally. Being one of the leading legalists of his day, now Paul changes to become the champion of the grace of God, the leading proponent of grace. And if you'll notice in chapter 1 and verse 6, Paul was confident that they in this church had also experienced this. Look at chapter 1, verse 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to the completion at the day of Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of this grace. It's not something that they weren't familiar with. And look at the last verse of Philippians, chapter 4 and verse 23. How does he walk away from this letter? Notice, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Keep walking in grace. Keep experiencing grace. Keep enjoying grace. Keep living and functioning and worshiping in that same grace that you now are manifesting. Paul knew that his very existence, his breath, came because of the grace of God. I love 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 10. You've probably heard this before. Paul says, I am what I am. How? By the grace of God. Now, don't stop there, because oftentimes that's been quoted, and we stop there. Paul says, I am what I am by the grace of God, and his grace toward me was not in vain. That is, it wasn't wasted. His grace came to me, and it did something in me. Well, Paul, what did it do? Well, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of the rest of them. Though it wasn't I, but the grace of God that is within me. Listen. If you really want to work and serve Jesus Christ with all your heart, let his grace captivate your mind and your heart. Paul said, I am what I am by the grace of God. And it wasn't something that I bragged about. It was something that drove me to work harder than anyone else. Grace pushed me. Grace is the motivator. Grace is the reason that Paul... And three times in that verse, the word grace is given. Well, how about grace for you and me, secondly, this morning? Those of us who are believers, and I want to make the distinction here. This is believing grace. That's different than what is called common grace. Common grace is God 
bestowing upon all of his creation his kindness and his creator love. Matthew chapter 5. The rain doesn't differentiate between Christian farmers and non-Christian farmers. Rain falls on both their crops. God sends sunshine on Christians and non-Christians. That's his common humankind grace for all people. But this special saving grace is only for those who believe in Jesus Christ and trust Him as Lord and Savior. And as we think about this word, I want to differentiate this morning something that I think is important. There is saving grace, and then there is living grace. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's God's gift, you can't boast about it, it's all about Him. That's getting into the kingdom of God, becoming a Christian, having the grace of God flood the heart, sins are cleansed, forgiveness is extended, and now you're a child of God. That's conversion, that's salvation as we understand it. But God's grace doesn't stop there. Although if you look at many people who call themselves Christians, you would think that. They're so happy they're going to heaven. They're so happy they made a decision for Jesus. Hey, everything's cool. Well, the question would be, well, what's it doing in your life? Has there been any change? And if the answer is no, profession or no profession, possibly, I'm nobody's judge, possibly you never experienced the grace of God. Because like Paul said, when God gave me His grace, I worked harder. I evidenced that His grace was a reality in my heart and my life. It's one thing to boast about grace. It's another thing to evidence grace. And the professing Christian, in my opinion now, you know, everybody's got an opinion, I got one too. In America, the professing Christian community in America is saturated with this idea. All I got to do is trust in Jesus. The way that I live, well, that's another thing. I can make choices based upon what I want, but that, that fire insurance policy, I'm not going to hell. Everything's cool. Well, there's only one problem with that. It ain't right. It ain't biblical. God's Word knows nothing about those who profess to know Jesus Christ and have received His saving grace, whose lives have not been completely changed. 2 Corinthians 5.17, If any man be in Christ, he is a what? Brand new creation. And that word in the Greek language has the idea of not taking a broken, termite-infested fence and whitewashing and making it look nice on the outside. The idea is that sucker's ripped out of the ground and a brand new fence is put in that was never there before. I was talking with my dear friend. We get together every week. I've known him for 30-some years. He came to Oklahoma as a one-year-old free-will Baptist Christian with a young family. He came to my church on a Sunday night. He fell in love with the teaching, and literally for the next eight or nine months, five days a week, we got together and studied the Bible. And we were talking the other night. He said, you know, sometimes I feel like a weirdo. I said, well, you are weird, you know. That's probably why we're friends. He said, you know, as soon as I became a Christian, I couldn't get enough of the Word. I couldn't get enough of Christ. I couldn't spend enough time in prayer. 
I couldn't be around God's people. And he said, you know what? It's still the same. But I look around and I see people who call themselves Christians. They have no desire for God. They have no desire for His Word. You can't get them out to pray. And that means they probably don't pray at home. They have no love for the lost people. He said, what's wrong with me? I said, I'll tell you what's wrong with you. Nothing. The normal Christian experience has become the abnormal. And the abnormal has become the normal. And someone like him, Steve Hines, my friend, sticks out like a sore thumb that's been hit by a hammer because he's just seeing the grace of God in his life. And many times he finds himself wondering, what's wrong with it? There ain't nothing wrong with you. Now, he's not sinless, believe me. Neither am I. But he was changed. Brand new creation. Old things have passed. New things have come. David Platt wrote a book called Radical. And that's what happens to someone who is truly born of God. Radical. There's a radical alteration. Head to toe, inside out. Mind, heart, and will. Saving grace is a one-time thing. Living grace is a daily experience in the life of a child of God. I quote John Piper. I do like John a lot. Hour by hour, day by day, the enjoyment and the experience of God's grace may vary. There's kind of an ebb and flow. One moment you're carried by a wave of grace into a harbor of peace. An hour later, after a painful phone call, we're storming out of sight and land again. That's reality. We need to own it and seek to continually receive the gift of Peter's words when he says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. New measures are needed for new moments, but there's always an influx, an infusion of fresh grace from God. 2 Corinthians 12.9, Paul's talking about his experience being caught up into the third heavens and seeing things that he never saw before. He came back to earth, and unlike Shirley MacLaine, he didn't write a book and make a movie and make money off of it. Okay? Paul said, I couldn't talk about it, but he was never the same. And during this time, this thorn in the flesh comes. Three times he said, God, would you please take it away? And God said, no, you have a tendency to be proud, Paul. So we're going to leave it right there. And I think that thorn in the flesh was a messenger of Satan, because that's what he says. So what did he say? Well, then I'll be satisfied. I'll delight in what God has done in my life. And God speaks to him and says, you know why? You need to understand my grace is sufficient. Not was, not will be, but is today and every day, all day long. My grace is sufficient for you. Every day, fresh grace is given to us or is available to us. Let me be careful there. Lamentations chapter 3. This I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new. Every morning, great is your faithfulness. And that's the basis of that great hymn. And listen, folks, this will be true until the moment we need the grace to die. It'll be there until that moment. And when it's time for us to leave this earth, if we are aware, if we are cognizant of what is happening around us, God will give us grace to pass from this life into the next. You want a really encouraging and challenging reading, get a book. One of them is called Voices from Eternity. 
and look at the difference between the way people die who know Jesus Christ and who don't know Jesus Christ. The grace that we need will stay with us until the day it's time for God to call us out of this life. And Peter tells us and instructs us to grow in grace. Not to be just satisfied, but to continually grow in this grace that God has given to us. Now let me make another clarification. As I was studying this morning, I thought it was needful to make some distinctions. God has an abundant supply of grace for His children. Amen? And it's their privilege and their responsibility to use His supply of grace. But God has also given to us tools or means to apply and to receive that grace. I've listed just five of them on your outline. And they're important. Do I want to be stronger in God's grace? Do I want to experience His grace all the more? Well, here's at least five ways that that can happen. You ever seen that happen before? I just took my watch off and put it up here. A, a guy brought his friend to church one time who had never been to church before. And uh, he said, now listen, what time is your preacher finished? Finishes preaching, oh, about 12 o'clock. Well, it was 11.30, and the preacher got up to preach and took his watch off and put it right in front of him. And his friend looked at him and said, so, uh, what does that mean? He goes, nothing. <laughs> it doesn't mean that today. Just want to let you know, but it's to help me keep track of the time. So what are those things? Well, Peter says, Humility. Humility is a means of grace. James says the same thing. God opposes the proud, but what does He do? He gives grace to the humble. Humility is a wonderful Christian character discipline. Humbling myself will bring grace. Prayer brings grace. What does the writer of Hebrews call where God sits and dispenses his mercies. He says in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16, let us come to the throne of grace. Praying brings more grace. The scriptures, reading and studying and meditating upon the scriptures, brings more. These are, these are tools, these are means that God has provided for us to draw upon the grace that he has available for us. Communion, we're going to do that this morning together. This is a means, a tool, to strengthen our hearts and our faith and our confidence in God and to help us to walk the Christian life. And then finally I've listed fellowship with and active participation in a local body of believers. I choose my words more carefully as I get older. I'll say that again. Fellowship with and active participation in a local body of believers. I don't want to shock you, but pew sitting is not a spiritual gift. Just, just saying. Spectatoring, probably not the right word, is not an essential part of a local church. 1 Corinthians 12 makes it clear that we're all part of the body. And each one of us has a gift. So that's the way. Being faithful to a local church, serving in a local church, giving of myself to a local church, working passionately with other people in a local church will strengthen my heart and my faith. It's a means of grace from God. Now, it's my responsibility to appropriate those. 
It's the same idea as Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Paul says, not only, and we'll see this later, not only when I'm with you, but even though I'm absent, maybe perhaps even more, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out. But then stop there. Verse 13, he says, for God's working it in. God works it in, you work it out. God provides the means, now use them. They will make you strong in the grace of God if we use them appropriately. Have you ever heard of John DeBrine? He used to have a program from, uh, was it Cape Cod, Massachusetts? He used to end all of his broadcasts with this phrase. Either you will grow in grace or groan in disgrace. You know why a lot of people who sit in churches this morning are just grumpy and depressed and sad. And I understand there's, there's perhaps circumstances that do that. But do you know why sometimes it's a perpetual thing? Because they don't avail themselves of the grace that God's given to them. God's provided. We need to use it. And God will, will honor His Word and His promises. Well, let me share with you a this was kind of a new thing for me as far as this category, some, some attributes or characteristics of this grace that God's given to us. Have you noticed up to this point I haven't defined it? <laughs> kind of preaching to the choir, aren't I? Well, let me do that right here, will you? I'm, I'm borrowing. This is one of several definitions. I thought it was pretty good. What is grace when we talk about that? I quote, earlier in my Christian life, somebody says, well, I know what God's grace is. G-R-A-C-E. It's God's riches at Christ's expense. Okay. <laughs> Leaves a whole lot out, but gives the idea. I want to go a little deeper than that, okay? Here it is. It's non-meritorious or unearned favor. It's an unearned gift. It's a favor or a blessing that is bestowed as a gift freely and never as a reward for any works that have been performed. Saving grace is what God grants for believing sinners only on the basis of His goodwill and choice which He wrought in Jesus Christ. If I receive grace, I did not earn it in any way. It's only on the basis of God's free will God's free choice, God's good kindness. So what's the goal of God giving me grace? Please may I remind you of this in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 6. The King James is a little bit clearer. He says, it is given salvation. You are seated in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. You receive all of these blessings to the praise of the glory of His grace. It's all about Him. For all of eternity, we will not be walking the streets of gold bragging about what we have received, but we will be bragging about the One who gave it and worshiping Him with all of our hearts. Psalm 106 and verse 8 says, Nevertheless, He saved them for His name's sake, for His glory, for His purpose. Grace, as you know, is summed up in the name and the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It's all about Him who is full of grace and truth. And Titus chapter 2 and verse 11, where it says, For the grace of God has appeared, that's not some abstract term. That's Jesus Christ has appeared. Christ who is grace, the summation, the embodiment of God's grace has appeared. 
Grace emphasizes two things, the character and kindness of God and the helplessness, the hopelessness, and the sinfulness of man. Those are the two things that are highlighted when we talk about grace. That's why we need to remember grace as often as we can. That's why we come to this table to be reminded of what? God's great mercy and our great sin and that which we have received because of his kindness. Please remember Romans 4, 1 through 5, as the Apostle Paul is getting into the heart of his doctrine, he reminds us that if it is by works, it's not grace. If it's by grace, it's not works. They are opposite each other. You can't have both of them. Grace is opposed to, saving grace is opposed to and opposite any idea of works whatsoever, period. It's all of God's grace that we are saved. However, here's the balance, at the same time, grace, saving grace, feeds or fuels Living grace, it's a fountain from which flows a life of good works, holiness, and faithful labor for the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 15.10 again, and others that I've listed there for you. Saved by grace, live by grace. The salvation by grace is the embodiment, the fountain, the motivator for me to live in God's grace every day. Now, here I want to just take a moment and caution some who may feel this way. I've had people say, wait a minute. You mean if I save by grace, I can, I can live like I want because the Bible says you're not under law, but you're under grace. It does say that in Romans chapter 6 and verse 14. But don't snatch that puppy out of its context. Paul's there not talking about living. He's talking about salvation. We are not saved by law. We're not under the law for our salvation. Our salvation is because of grace. But please do not feel that just because we are saved by grace, there are no rules. There are no commandments. There are no statutes by which we must live. Paul even mentions something called the law of Christ. We are under law. We are not antinomian, which means against law. It does matter how I live. If I call myself a Christian, I cannot flagrantly, intentionally, and knowingly disobey this word and not pay for it. Sooner or later, the Spirit of God belongs to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. You know their motto? They always get their man. And a person who dares to fly in the face of God's grace and say, thank you for saving me. Now, if I need you, I'll call you. And then live the way they want. And when you confront them with it, say, wait, we're not under law. We're under grace. Don't tell me how to live. I don't Really? Read the New Testament. It's very, very clear. There are rules. There are commandments for the child of God. I'm not going to drag you back to the Old Testament. I'm going to stay in the New right now. And the New Testament is full of things that God says we must do. Someone says this, and I don't know who it was, so I wrote unknown. I don't remember who I got this from. God's grace in Christ Jesus demands that we deny what is wrong called sin and delight in what is called righteousness and pursue those things. It becomes quite evident that grace never is a means 
to have unbridled living or doing as one pleases because they stand in the grace of God. Paul used the phrase, I think it was in Galatians, to not turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. That's the old King James. That is a license to sin. He dealt with that in the book of Romans, remember? He ends chapter 5 by talking about the wonderful grace of God. He says, listen, stack your sins as high as you want. The grace of God always goes higher. Amen? Amen. Paul was a lawyer-thinking person. So he says, you know what? Somebody's going to read that, and they're going to say, ooh, really? So no matter how high I stack my sin, grace will always go higher? Hmm. They're the people who sing, I was sinking deep in sin. Whee! Paul said, no, don't think like this. If you think that you can keep stacking your sin because there will always be more grace, he says in chapter 6 and verse 1, what? Shall we continue in sin that this grace may abound? God forbid. We have died to the power and reign of sin in our life and we're alive in Jesus Christ unto our Heavenly Father. We must not take God's grace and use it as a license to do what we want. God's grace demands and motivates towards holy living. Titus chapter 2, verses 11, down through verse 14. Two more characteristics. Number one, saving grace. God's saving grace can never be lost. Amen? I... I believe in what is commonly known as eternal security. As old Charles Spurgeon said, if it's not eternal life, I don't want it. By the way, it's not my salvation anyway. It's God's salvation. Once you're redeemed by the blood of Christ, you can never be unredeemed. However, that is not an excuse to live the way I want. It's not an excuse to intentionally and willfully sin against God's grace. Living grace can be neglected, can it not? Sometimes it's called backsliding. Sometimes it's just called good old laziness, lethargy, whatever it is. And if I get involved in neglecting this living grace and not taking the means of grace that God provides, only one person is going to lose, not God. I'm the one who's going to suffer. Finally, the grace of God brings Tremendous blessings. Wish I had time to go into all these. I'll just mention them. You have them on the outline there. And at your leisure, perhaps even today, you can study them. What does it mean? It means that I'm accepted before God. I have an audience before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Secondly, I have power and enablement to do what God's called me to do. Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I have a new standing. I'm a saint. I'm a saint, a child of God. I'm holy in God's sight. And I have an internal inheritance. It's imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading and reserved in heaven. It's not subject to the bank in Washington, D.C. and all of the fluctuations. This is an eternal inheritance that God has provided. And it's there waiting for me in Christ Jesus. So the question may have come to you as we're studying grace. What about that other word, peace? Well, just basically it's this. Peace is the result of grace. It's the result. If you have grace, you have peace. You don't have grace, you have no peace. That's why God bless the present president. I think his intentions are well. I think he's doing the best that he can. 
You may like him or not like him, but all the presidents before him, they're going to go to Camp David, they're going to bring the Palestinians and Jews together, and they're going to have peace. Guess what? They ought to call me in. I'll tell you what's going to happen. You're never going to have peace until the Prince of Peace rules your heart and you bow before the King of Kings. Till then, you're not going to have peace. Grace brings peace. No grace, no peace. The same thing's true in the lives of people. Without grace, there is no peace. That's why he adds that, because it's a blessed result of it. And then he tells us who the authors are. It's from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all about God. So what do we say to these things? If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, please let me tell you that God's grace is free. It's available. But as one old Puritan said, it might be free, but it's not cheap. It's not cheap. Don't, don't presume. Well, didn't the thief on the cross come and trust Jesus at the last moment? Yes, he did. And as one old Puritan said, there was one so that no one would despair, but there was only one so that no one would presume. Okay? If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, God has grace for you this morning. Trust Him. Believe on His Son. He'll give you saving grace and change your life. Brothers and sisters, this is one more ingredient that will make us as a people of God full of joy. So what about grace and works in my life? The Spirit of God been taking verses like 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 10 that's happened to me a lot this week and say, so am I working hard for Jesus? Has His grace made that difference in my life? Can I ask you this morning, are you living by grace or are you caught up in the performance treadmill? Do you think that God's going to love you more if you pray more and you read your Bible more and you do more good things? Nothing could be farther from the truth. God's love for me is not based upon anything that I do. It's based upon His Son. When I came to know Jesus, God began to love me in Christ. He will never love me any more. He'll never love me any less than He did at that moment. But the experience of that in my life is dependent upon my using the means of grace. Please don't get caught on that. Remember, the performance treadmill says that God loves me because of what I do. No, the gospel is God loves you because of what Christ has done. And if you believe that Christ has done this for you, you'll want to serve Him. You'll want to read His Word. You'll want to pray. You'll want to be with His people. You'll want to be at communion. You'll want to tell lost people about Jesus Christ. Don't get caught on that treadmill.